Hello and welcome to Data Futurology. This podcast is for data enthusiasts, data scientists, upcoming data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We do this directly by listening to current industry leaders, executives, people that have been in the field for decades, and we distill their, their knowledge and wisdom into this podcast for you. My name is Felipe Flores, and I am your host. Today, we will be speaking to Caroline Warboys. She is based out of the UK. She has over 30 years of experience in the data industry. She's worked, created, consulted, mentored to many data-driven organizations. She has a background in analytics and also has done a lot of work in digital marketing, CRM space. And what I found really interesting about Caroline is that in her career, she's played all the different roles. She's been a technical lead. She's been a business business lead. She's been a founder. She's been an investor, very, very active in the industry, very keen to give back. Her journey is fantastic. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please stick around to the end to hear from our sponsors and show them some love. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you're having a fantastic week. And here is the episode with Caroline Warboys out of the UK. Hi, this is Felipe Flores, and today I'm speaking with Caroline Borboys. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Thanks so much for making the time. That's so exciting to get to speak to you. You're welcome, very welcome indeed. I wanted to ask you at the beginning if you could give us a little bit about your background. Sure, I can tell you something about the career, but I'll start by saying sharing one important bit of information. I was kind of one of those girls who went to school and then went traveling when it was a lot less trendy than it is now. In fact, virtually no one went traveling and it was very difficult. And I'll just age myself slightly by saying there was no EU. So going traveling and getting jobs in Germany or France or something was somewhat challenging. But I went traveling and I ended up working in Germany and then I ended up working in Paris. I lived in Paris for five years with my cut de séjour. And then I met my husband and came back to the UK and got married. And I clearly, as a consequence of that, I never went to university. So let me begin by saying I am no data scientist, but I have always worked with data. In fact, I worked with data way before it was trendy, cool and anywhere near sexy. So I'm one of the originals, I think, really, and made early decisions with it. So some of the things I talk about will probably be stories way before most of your listeners will even be born, now at which point they can all imagine me looking about 700. Anyway, I'll try not to be too tedious on it, but it is quite different. Oh, that is hilarious. But yeah, I'm so excited to be speaking with you because you have such amazing, amazing experience. So how did you get started in the space? Well, I think when I try to sort of chunk it up to what were the interesting bits, when I was um, working in France, partly because there was no EU and partly because people were speaking less English, there was opportunity for people who were English mother tongue, jobs advertised in the International Herald Tribune in those days was the only place you could find a job where they needed English mother tongue and they needed people who could speak good French. One of the jobs I laterally took was working for the president and the vice president of the mayor of Procter & Gamble. And one of the things I learned there was to deal with very powerful people who were making really big decisions. And also, I learned to speak. So one of the guys was German. The other guy was American, went on to be a global president of Procter & Gamble. And of course, the language in the office was French. So I learned quite quickly to deal with very important people. And I was really quite young. 
young. I mean, they had a criteria. In those days, you could put criteria on jobs and say, I need someone who's over 30. And I was in my early 20s. So I learned very quickly to process information at speed, because one minute you'd be speaking one language, the next minute you'd be speaking the next language. And I learned to deal with very senior people. And I actually think what then happened was when I came back to the UK and got married, I got a job in a very small business where they did direct marketing. And in that small business, one of the clients that we dealt with was a company called Lotus, Lotus 123, which many of the people left to go and work for Microsoft. And of course, so it was the early pre-runner of kind of spreadsheets, etc. And what you used to happen was when you would say, right, would you like the upgrade? Basically, you would direct mail people and then people would, believe it or not, listeners, send in checks by the bag load. And we would put data into very early databases and manage who got upgrades when they got upgrades. I could certainly see that this was the beginning of technology as we know it now. And this was very much the beginning of um, direct response in these high volumes. So that was kind of a very early thing. And probably, the other thing that stood me in good stead is because I was used to something of a large company environment and because I was used to speaking to very senior people, then most of the people there were a little bit reticent to put themselves out there and actually talk to the clients and make suggestions. And I noticed I was quite logical about it and I could understand the technical concepts. So very quickly, I was put on to lead a number of things that were quite data centric. What were some of the learnings that you got about speaking with senior people? What were the things that you were taught back then? I don't think I learned so much from the really senior people then, other than that they would go very quickly and they could cut straight to the chase. There was no nonsense. There was a lot of speed and it was go for the headlines. I think it was much, much later in my career that when I had to practice it at much more senior levels, that I actually got better at trying to go straight for the simplicity and the headlines and really understand what were their issues than I was probably doing at that stage. I think I was better than most at it, but I hadn't yet become superb at it. And probably the other thing that's worth saying is that at this point, I'm sort of probably talking the late 80s. And it was in the UK, it was quite challenging conditions for working women. And so again, it was a very different times, but the way to sort of get the better jobs and to get promoted quickly was to be better than average. So if you wanted to progress, interest rates were crazy. People forget it. They think we were very lucky, but interest rates were going up to 18%. And we were really struggling. But by the the sort of early 90s, I can sort of date things by when my children were born. It was very difficult. So if you wanted to have more money, you had to sort of outcompete the the people around you. And particularly, you had to outcompete the men. And there was certainly no maternity leave as we now know it. And if you were pregnant and you owned up, you could kind of very easily lose your job. So I very much thought of myself as lucky that I managed to keep progressing and lucky that I was allowed to keep my job. There was a lot of hard work involved in those early days, I think is probably the key point. Definitely. It sounds tough and challenging environment. And I'm I'm glad that in a lot of ways, we've we've come a long way. really good we've progressed it's really good we progressed as much as we have I never used to mention it but I think sometimes now it's worth mentioning because it's actually not that long ago that um, it was somewhat challenging. Where do you think those changes came from what was the adoption of or the evolution to make those important changes that you were talking about? 
you could see very early the advancement of understanding how using customer data, and I'll really most of my experiences around customer data, how using customer data to target people at the right time, predominantly by direct mail granted, would drive an uptake in purchase or a response to repurchase. And you could definitely see that in the volumes and just by the communications going out. And I think that was just at the time when what you'd call now database marketing and in the early days of CRM and single customer view database were starting to come out and starting to understand that if I mail this person, sorry, not email, but if I mail this person up to 13 times, will they still respond and buy The Economist or, or won't they? When's the cutoff point? When does it become? That discipline was becoming quite prolific. Um, it was growing. It was one of the areas that was growing really rapidly. So given the circumstances that but a lot of the really exciting jobs at the time were in the creativity of of direct marketing. How do we do marketing that's direct as in not TV advertising? And the exciting jobs were in agencies where you were working with clients doing the creativity. Honestly, I made a very conscious decision to stay in what was then loosely called CRM database marketing. A, because I could see that a lot of the people who were smart were going towards agency. All the agency jobs were in central London. I was living just outside central London and I had two young boys. So the commuting would have been a challenge as well. And it wasn't the way that somebody was going to say, oh, never mind, we're understanding of your situation as a mother. It, it, it was definitely, you would work harder and better and, and perform better than most people to keep it because it was seen as a public impediment that you potentially love. So I deliberately stayed in data. That was a good decision. If I had my time again, I don't know what I would do, but in today's world, that I made the decision then to stay in data. That is excellent. And what were some of the challenges that you were facing during that time? The basic principles are always have always been the same. The basic principles of is this with consumer data, is this Caroline Warboys the same Caroline Warboys who put this in? How can we take payment? Um, have we refunded people? Am I communicating too much? Am I communicating too little? All those sorts of things. How do I get their attention? The principles are exactly the same as the principles now of all sort of direct communication. It, it wasn't radically different. It was just that the majority, the deployment was by direct mail rather than by anything electronic. And I, to be fair, when somebody now tries to tell you the principles of some of the other mediums, that they're not fun, nothing's fundamentally different from those early learnings. I am so glad that you said that because so many people think that if it's electronic, it's completely different or that if it's the latest social media or marketing campaign, it's completely different. But you're absolutely right. The discipline was created quite early. Absolutely. And the other thing that is probably slightly different, and it varies by organization, because it was more expensive to do these things, technology was very expensive, engineers, developers were very expensive. And of course, the cost of postage was very expensive, that reducing waste and ensuring that what you were doing was accurate and was as good as it could be meant that the discipline of testing and being really thorough and not making any mistakes was highly robust. 
And I would say as we moved more towards an email where it didn't really matter so much, and you could argue with some of the digital nowadays where, you know what, it's easier to go for reach than it is to go for pinpoint accuracy because it's so cheap. Actually, some of I would argue that maybe some of that testing has been lost. That's right. I completely agree because yes, people can essentially afford to be less careful, but it's not necessarily the best way. Which has been fine to a certain degree. That is where we tire consumers by giving them useless rubbish that they really don't want, which in turn then feeds into organizations calling for better controls and better regulations because the world is becoming more about consumer. Exactly right. And how did you learn the skills of the data space early in your career? I think the same way you learn anything. You have to have an absolute inherent curiosity. And one of my interview questions, in fact, to people is, do you listen to podcasts? And what podcasts do you listen to? Because I think there are people out there who are genuinely into self-improvement and willing to listen to and to learn new things and to take on new ideas. And there are other people who just quite frankly, will do a sort of mediocre or a minimum amount rather than go above and beyond. So I think first and foremost, you have to be a curious individual. And that means you seek out the information. And clearly, the world's easier now. There's an internet, you you can shop 24-7, you can YouTube virtually anything. So I think the challenge now for people is what are the good things to go to? Where are the right places of the truth? When I was doing it, it's just the same thing as you're doing now. You're listening and you're deciding who are the good people to listen to and where are the good people that you learn from. And if that means sitting with technical people and trying to understand how something works, then that's what you do. That's great. So you're diving into it and looking for it. And how was it for you when you started moving into leading and management positions? I quite quickly, because I was quite sharp at it, I quite quickly started to lead big accounts. And then I quite quickly got searched out for other jobs. And then I started working for a pretty big company and had to work across lots of people with lots of management responsibility and some very large accounts. And by now I was traveling for work all around the UK and managing very large sort of like car accounts or data to do with the flotations and things like that. So flotation for the Wellcome Foundation or something like that. So there's was, there was a big work going on. And certainly it was still more difficult um, being a woman. And as I said, I've never really been one who believes that in people being victims of anything. But I think just for, for an interest's sake, because the subject mm. is data and data science, it was very, very rare to ever find another woman in the space. Yes. Very rare. Yes. Everything I did was with mostly the men, but there weren't a lot of women around at all. Why do you think that that is or that was? I think the truth is that there was less women in general anyway. And as I said, even if I look at friends of my age, it was harder. So a lot more women. I mean, 10 years later, it was already getting better because the world had moved on. But there was a lot of people who had a job and then gave up. Or if you came back, you could come back to something that was more administrative based rather than anything that was leadership or management based because it was so demanding. Anyway, one could wax on about that forever. But that, that was certainly it was an impediment to growing women in that discipline. So it was a harder managerial job trying to learn 
and trying to understand how to manage how to manage men and how to manage a lot of people. And then what happened was basically the that that company came to the end of the road. Even as a very big business with some 50 million turnover, there was some hostile takeover, and I left. And I thought, well, the only way I'm actually going to manage to more easily continue to work is to start my own business. So I started my own business, which was database marketing, and I built up a nice. Well, at that time, most organizations went through agencies, and agencies controlled the relationship with the client. So I set up a business to go direct to clients because if I'd waited for the agency to get their money and then pay me, I wouldn't have been able to afford to do it. So I went direct to clients, and also there was new technology coming out. And one of the new technologies was, I mean, they're still around today. There's a company called Aptico um, who do fast counting tools. So you can do very fast, quick analytical counts. And in those days, there was a company called Alterian. There was a company called Smart Focus, which is now more a bit of quick counting and also a bit of email deployment. But they started out using this KXEN rule to quickly count. So don't quiz me on KXEN, but I know that was one of the cause of it. And my hypothesis was that if I managed my clients' data and they could understand more how many customers they had and how frequently those customers wanted to be communicated with, and now we're getting to email and everything else, how frequently they want to be communicated with, if I could empower them to know more and analyze the data a little, then those clients would do more things and they would be able to very quickly make decisions. So I changed the model where everyone used to charge every time a client gave them and said, can you tell me how many people I've got in the south of England who buy cruises from Southampton to the Mediterranean? And generally, the selection criteria was something like that. And then what you would do is you would say, yeah, well, that's going to cost you X per hour. And it's because the resource was expensive. It's going to cost you X per hour. And it's going to cost you X per thousand for me to select. And then X per thousand for me to pull the data. So what I did was I just said, I know, in essence, they're going to end up doing 10, 20 campaigns a month or whatever it was. I know how much data they've got. So I will invest in this tool. And it wasn't a distributed tool at that point. I will put it on all the databases that I build. And I will just say to the client, I will charge you a flat fee. And you can have as many counts and do as many campaigns as you like. And then once you go over a certain amount of campaigns, then the flat fee may go up and I will do this. And guess what? Funny story, but they did more campaigns, they understood their data more, they got better at it, and the business grew. And the business grew, and I had a 90% recurring margin. I wasn't reliant on a client maybe doing something or maybe not. They could control their budget. They weren't burning it all in the first half. And I decided I'd always done the business with the view to build it and sell it. I was talking to a few interested parties. And then I had a very interesting break insofar as a competitor was talking to News International. And they said to him, who are you coming up against? And he said, my name. And he said, yeah, they've just beaten me on a big, recently I got beaten by them on a big government account. It was a very difficult piece of work, a many-to-many relationships. So it was doctors who could be under their maiden name on looking after one type of medical purpose and operating under their married name as a GP. And you had to get to them by the type of subject they were going after, but also by the location they were in. Because if they were doing um, pediatrics, 
as a consultant under their maiden name and they were doing general practitioner under their married name, but it was general practitioner. They wanted the general practitioner information to the general practitioners and they wanted the other stuff. And of course, maintaining all that data was, was a bit of a nightmare. So we'd won that business and they gave my name. And so actually some way through the process, News International came in to also try and bid for the business. And it made a lot of sense because they had other businesses in their world that they needed to transform and do something with. And um, and yeah, in the end, I had four or five bids for the business and I sold to News International. And that was in my early 30s. Wow, that is an incredible journey by your early 30s. How yeah. was the early days of setting up the business? What were the challenges then? Well, the biggest challenge is nowadays there's lots of seed investors and angels investors, and, and I do quite a lot of that myself. And there's a lot of people who are willing to help and give advice. And there's a lot you can read. If we go back to the point, the internet is there. To put it into context, in the UK at that in those early days, we didn't have Sunday shopping and we didn't have the internet. So I was the woman who worked all week and then dragged three, I know, by now I have three boys. I dragged three screaming boys around a supermarket or to the school shop to buy shoes or the whatever. So then you don't have social channels to communicate on. So you generally, the time you got that, you got three school bags full of notes from teachers that are all telling you you've got to do X, Y, Z. So it's a very different time. The money was not readily available because you've just come out of the point where interest rates were extremely high. People had gone backwards rather than forwards. So the only way to really raise the money to start the business was to put your house as security, which I say with a slight I say with a slight laugh now. Yes, I had three young children, a husband, my house was the security on the business. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that was the only way to do it. You know? Amazing. I think the interest from that is it kind of relates to one of those other questions of what should young people do now and what would you do differently? And there probably were some people around who could have been an advisor and helped, but I didn't have those connections to them. And I think to a certain degree that came from when you're very young and you're working and you're trying to manage children and commute and do all those things. I didn't have time to stand around the water cooler and make nice conversation or people were going down the pub for lunch I generally had to get on and be very very focused and be able to sort of multitask and process information very quickly so a lot of those early things of learning the languages processing the information quickly you're using all those skills to actually get there that was good but also the negative in it is maybe if I had done more of that I would have met more people who may have been able to help me and um, give me more advice in those early days and certainly if anyone's doing it now for themselves I would say seek out people who have really honestly read the book and seen the movie and been there because they can stop you going down a whole bunch of dead ends and be a really good sounding board. And the thing I would also say for even young people in their sort of early 30s, etc., is the more your organization or your world allows you to go and understand what's happening in other businesses is really good learning, whether that be helping industry or trade bodies or whatever, go get involved somewhere else so you get some degree of understanding of what good looks like in a place to work that isn't your own place of work, it isn't your day job. I started doing a lot more of that later and that was extremely helpful. I think both of those pieces of advice are amazing. 
make sure that you get right information and find the right people that can help you and also see more than just where you work because that variety will show you distinctions that'll make you a lot better really great and how did you have the conviction to start a business with all those hurdles I probably didn't know it, but I think I was more ambitious. And again, you go back to the issue that some people are not brought up to be ambitious. And I certainly wasn't. No one ever anticipated that ambition was a female thing, particularly, because it just wasn't there. And there were some places, and probably if I'd gone to university and been good, there would have been, I would have met people and done things that had said, be ambitious. But it wasn't a big thing that I kind of, all my life, I thought, oh, I'm going to be really ambitious but you want to kind of progress you want to reach your full potential I think is probably the best way to describe it and I think that that was probably more the driver money always plays a bit of a part I'm not really ruthlessly focused by money I'm more interested in progress and I'm much more interested in reaching potential even to this day I probably find it most frustrating working where there are people with great potential who do nothing about it or people with great potential who don't necessarily get the opportunities they should be getting. The thing that gives me the most satisfaction is when I see people reach their full potential. They really are doing what they should be doing and doing that way. But it's very hard to understand what your potential is when you're very early on because yes. you may think you're very good at one thing and actually it turns out you're not as good at that as you thought you were. You know. How did you find or how did you go about finding what you were good at? It's just very iterative. I'm not a bad all-rounder. I can get my head around most things, but which sounds odd to say, but I think creativity has played a big part in all the major successes I've had. So it's more, here are the component parts I have. I understand what the technology is capable of. I understand what we can analytically do. I understand from going way back to all those years in Paris at Procter Gamble, I understand what marketing is trying to achieve. So how can I take the sum, and I'm a consumer, so I get that as well. How can I take the sum of all those parts and create something that will make this better, make it operate in a better way. So a good explanation of that would be, by the time I was then working for News, we had my original business. We had a business that was taking, in those days, analog calls. If you call this number, premium rate numbers, if you call this number, you can win £100,000 or whatever, you know, people would call up and try and win the cash and then you get one winner. And you're getting a good price for the phone call, you make a nice margin, it's very easy money. But of course, that world was changing as well. And we turned that into um, TV voting. And so what that became was the vote on who wants to be a millionaire. It became everything on ITV. I'm a celebrity. We did all the work for Sky, where it was the first ticket tape going across the bottom of the screen at the time of the Iraq war to say what was going on. And we also had call centers in the year 2000, of course, when the internet was coming. People used to phone up and say, hello, I've seen an advert on the TV for a nice brochure to go to the Caribbean. Can you send me one, please? And if you phoned up 10 times, you would get 10 brochures because it was 
a transaction. It wasn't what we'd now all call a customer data platform or a single customer view. So that those sorts of things were all going on. And really what we did was took a business and took the component parts and said, how can I from this create things that will add real value to, to organizations? And certainly the activity around TV voting became much more complex. How we could combine that with things like fantasy football games, how we could then take the data and use it to improve things like subscription management. So doing subscription management for the FT, for the Times, how we could take data and say, okay, here comes someone who originally phoned up and said, can I have a brochure to join the RAF? And then what you'd see is that they may then go onto the website, because now we have some websites, and they start to register. And you can see it's a good candidate, but it's partially registered, and then they've stopped. So then how do you do a call going out to them to say, oh, hello, John, we noticed you were filling out and your application looks good, so why don't you continue? And then they say, oh, I'm stuck at this bit or I can't do. And then you hope. Because of course, at that point, it's not like now where people from university are used to going online and filling in forms and doing. At that point, it was very much about nurturing that change in behavior and using all the channels and the assets to get people to do things differently. And there were the 14 stages of, I think it's 14, you're testing my brain now, but I think there was 14 stages of getting into the RAF. And of course, clearly, those final ones are face-to-face -face interviews and several phases of face-to-face -face interviews and assessments live. But just through communications and using the data and using channels, we were getting the applicants right up to stage seven. So we would take them to stage seven, and then we would give that information to the RAF, and then the RAF could continue the final process. So the cost of return of how much it was costing us to do, because some of this resource is expensive expensive resource, there's some expensive technical resource, some expensive people resource doing the communication. So you get to that point and that's got payback more than it costs them to do. So again, that's how do you creatively create a solution that is more cost effective than the existing system, which was very, very high admin costs, not driven by data and tech within an office in the RAF doing what they previously used to do? And how do you take that phoning up for a brochure and evolving it from a transaction into a very, very early days multi-channel environment? So we did lots of client work like that. That was very good. And then we ultimately sold that business. So I then ultimately sold that business to another company and they then had some component businesses and then what we did with that was we transformed that business into what became the third credit reference agency call credit and call credit is a very big business in the UK that I left when we sold it to private equity because by now I was constantly commuting to the north of England that then became a big credit reference agency but that's where the world was changing very quickly and to be honest a lot of that work we did then is still which the late 90s sort of mid to late 90s is still would be good case studies today but it was quite groundbreaking because the softwares weren't around i'm sure it was groundbreaking i mean it's still yeah. impressive how were you able to see and spot the opportunities and see what the problems were that then could be solved through technology and in, in a cheaper way I think that's the core of it, really, which is somewhat a rambling answer on the last one, is that the challenge often with data and data science is that people can analyze it or 
they can manage it well, but it is very much, and what is it going to do as a consequence of what you've done with it? What is it going to change in the business? Hence why in trying to tell that story, the end goal is it's got to be able to do it faster, better, cheaper, and with better consumer experience than the existing system. And sometimes with analytics, someone's creating a model, but how is that model going to make an actual difference to what's currently happening? Is it going to help us understand the data faster and predict more accurately? What's it going to do? I think what's very hard for data scientists is sometimes it's kind of bottom up and sometimes it's kind of top down, but how good are the briefs that they're given? I think this is one other sort of big question that's out there is what keeps them stimulated? You've got a lot of clever people that, that really want to do something that they know can fundamentally make a difference, but the briefs have got to be really precise about... I'm looking to do this. So let me try and think of a simple example. If you actually could identify from airline data that somebody's been at silver status and is clearly not from their status, but from a bunch of other data, like how much they're paying for their tickets and how far in advance they book and how much share of wallet you're getting and a whole bunch of things, you can identify that this really is a loyal customer and they are constantly getting to the top of the silver status, but they're never getting to gold. And actually, they're a really good customer. So if you could process all that data and understand it from many, many angles, just say they, they're a really good customer and they're silver and they've been disrupted loads and there's a whole bunch of issues going on. So what do you consider the criteria that might come together to say, there's the sort of person that's really not getting treated for what they're spending with us and for what's going on the way we think they should. Okay, so let's decide on what we might look at. Then let's decide on what the model might look at. And then you get the model that say, okay, here now, maybe even out of thousands, I've got several hundred people that are on the cusp of being either going up a status or down a status, but actually they're fundamentally brilliant customers for us and we should be nurturing them and looking after them. What is the trigger that says push them up or keep them at the level or push them down or do whatever. And that needs to flow through. And there needs to be a, okay, so if it meets these criteria and these things happen, what are we going to do? It needs to be a decision. And then that decision needs to be activated. And all too often, what happens with the analytics and the data work is that it gets taken thus far. And then somebody will say, so this is what it looks like. And then they look at the business people as if to say, and you kind of decide how you're going to apply it. And they kind of go, well, I don't really know because I don't really understand. So what could I maybe do? So then they look at the analytics person and say, well, what do you think I should do with it? And then the analytics person doesn't have enough understanding about the business issues. So I think the more one can get curious about what sort of things might you do with it and understand the business, the better it works on the other side. As I said at the beginning, I'm not a data scientist. I understand the business issues and I understand enough about data science and analytics and technology to be able to work out the art of the possible. So it's that creativity that comes together. And I really enjoy the creativity of it that brings you the big business ideas that bring you the big money. And I'm sure all the data scientists and the people I currently work with, every time we'll come say, I've had an idea. Could we? They all probably roll their eyeballs and think, I'm, but no, actually, 
a lot of them are on paper and then they work and they fly, but you have to write really tight briefs. And I think as a data scientist, people have to think about whether they want to be someone in the back room writing the code and creating the models. But I do think there's a lot of really good people out there that could be more on that strategy of data science rather than just pure numbers of data science. And I've worked with some great people on that. That was excellent. The fact that you were able to build your knowledge and capability on both sides, on the technology and data side and on the business side, allowed you to be the bridge between the two worlds. And then you add the creativity side in order to bring in the art of the possible from the technology side into the business problems. That combination is so powerful and allowed you to see the opportunities and be able to chase them successfully. That's what I did in big agencies, winning work. And that's what I do in um, Outro now is understanding what's the art of the possible. You know it from the bottom up as well as from sort of what the business objectives are. Correct. From both sides. That's great. And tell me, how do you go about building your teams? I think it's challenging because people are evolving and changing themselves because often they're coming in young and then they're learning and they're going in different directions. It's the same as it has always been. You need a relationship with people. You really need to understand what motivates them. And if they're not 100% sure about what motivates them, I think it takes time and effort to put in to say, what do you really like? What don't you like? It takes time to observe what actually gets them excited and doesn't get them excited. And sometimes it's just conversation about, well, when you were at university, what was the best bits and what were the worst bits? And again, I'd give it as one of those bits of advice that people can often say, I really hate, for instance, I really hate presenting or I hate talking about myself. I hate meetings or whatever. But sometimes they're not so good at saying, when you say to them what you really like, they haven't got it quite as clear in their brain. And I think that's especially true when you're young. So write a list of what you really don't like doing. And I'm not saying that I can say to people, oh, you don't like that bit, so never do it. There are definitely some things that we all do on a daily basis that we may not like or that throw us out of our comfort zone, but they go with the territory. But you can at least move yourself in the direction that comes back to what I was saying earlier, that it very much plays to your strengths. And it's just a question of you understanding where your strengths are, how you can play play to those strengths. And so it's also back to that piece about when does someone want to have really deep knowledge in one particular area, say the engineering around data science versus when does somebody want to be really deep in another area, which is building machine learning models around data science. There's, there's various things that you can do. And when is someone the type of person who actually really enjoys understanding the business problem and then can apply all their knowledge to saying, well, talking to somebody else like me or some of the other business people say, how? Have I understood it correctly? Is this the business problem? Okay, I'll go away and therefore use my brain to work out how I can deploy my understanding of the business problem. So I'd say there's the kind of breaks into those few things. Have a relationship, understand their motivations, their likes and their desires, as it were. And then there's just the guidance. You've got to then guide them in that direction. And then the final part is everything has to have results. Doesn't matter the age of four, we're all kind of driven by some degree of results. And keeping an eye on what those results are and delivering against those results is really important because you can be absolutely brilliant, but if you're not 
focused on the outcome of the results. There's a lot of clever people that just end up leaving organizations or not being valued in organizations, not reaching their full potential because they've missed it. That unless it's completed, finished, and there are the results and it can be implemented or it can have some benefit, it's useless. Sometimes people are better at different bits of that process. That's generally how we try to be a bit more open, honest about where some greater focus might be needed. Yeah, and I think it happens a lot in data science that people get, I don't know if distracted or get carried away with the technical side sometimes and they forget about the business objective, the outcome or the problem that's trying to be solved. And you do need to get to that outcome. Yeah, and I think the thing is, is that because a lot of people have been working, especially PhDs, and people working on very advanced ways of doing things to get to the highest degree of accuracy. Now, if we were doing data science for cancer research, it's a different ballgame to doing data science for consumer growing businesses or growing the value of consumers or being much more consumer centric about things. It's a very different ballgame. So there comes this cutoff between when when you overcook it and when do you just say that the 80% is good enough and now we need to make it go faster so now we'll get on to the next place. So I think again when people go to decide what they're going in you kind of need to think about how you are as a person and map that to the organisation. So if you're somebody who really wants to be very very academic about it then go to the sort of organisation where that's going to be really important versus if you're somebody who likes more ideas and a fast pace come to environments the more like ours that are more about how customer data is applied. That's the sort of thing that people have to think through. Exactly. And when you're hiring people, how do you evaluate their potential? Our data scientists give the other data scientists a test. I don't know much about the test. I don't think I've got anything to input into it. I'll employ people who do things that I can't do. So they have some very super and difficult tests. They constantly amaze me with their knowledge and their skills. So there's generally some test and then there's some telephone interview and then there's a face-to-face interview. And we're quite clear about, I will interview them more to understand their motivations, their personality. Can they communicate? Will they work in the team? Will they fit with the culture? And we generally make a sort of a group-based decision. I like to employ people that can tell me what it is I need to do. They're not frightened to say, I think we should do this, or I have an idea. I've seen a better way of doing something. So it comes back to that creativity. Those people are really good and, and useful rather than people who just say, here's a task, go do it. But again, I do think there are some people who are more comfortable in an environment where they get given a series of tasks and it's project managed and they can just do it and there's no disruption whereas our environment is a bit more there is disruption because you're driven by clients so demands can change and that's just slightly different yes definitely and how do you create a shared vision for your team so they can all pull together One of the things we're trying to do at the moment is do things six times faster than our competitors in the industry. I think when I say let's do six times faster, the thing we don't want to do, and it's been true in a lot of businesses I run, is you've got to get a high common denominator and you've got to get to the point where you're not redoing things for the sake of redoing things. And again, I think there's some balance here between people saying, oh, academically, 
I, I'm not sure I've done quite that and debating about a certain approach or a certain method. You've got to get everyone together to say, okay, this is how we're going to do it. Everyone agreed, everyone buy in, this is the way it's going to go. Okay, let's run with it. If somebody has an amendment to it that is significant, it's almost back to the testing. If it's going to make a significant difference to what you were doing, then maybe we go through the cost and the effort of doing it. But if it's just a marginal difference that no one's going to notice, then it's not commercially viable to do anything on that piece. So we kind of agree, loosely speaking, what good looks like and what the purpose of what we're doing is. So we try and do this six times faster. So what we do is we say, okay, this is how we're going to do it six times faster. We're going to try it the first time. The second time we will move towards the automation of it. And the third time it will already be automated. That helps us make things go faster. In order to make it go faster, but to serve lots of different clients and lots of different environments, you have to ensure you've got quite a high common denominator in it and you have to ensure that we're not repeating unnecessary work. So we use things like make all our models available to each other. If there is a model that is pretty much done but can be amended a little bit for a different industry or needs a different variable coming in, it can be seen and it can be changed. So it's all about how do we as a team, what ideas and views is it we have that can make us go six times faster than a traditional organisation. So we kind of coalesce around that and then we have some principles like you have it all available to each other, we have controls, we have a quick sprint way of working, we have regular standards ups. We do things like that that make it a bit better. And that's not to say the world's perfect. But that's roughly what we do. And we talk a lot about what really good looks like and better vision and spend a lot of time explaining what a client solution may be like. I love that there's a measurable metric there that you're aiming for in terms of the yeah. speed. That's great. And I wanted to ask you, how have you balanced family life and work slash business throughout your career? The truth is, in the early days, you just do nothing for yourself whatsoever. You just become a complete machine. That really is the truth. The concept of me time feels like it's it's been relatively, I guess it started to come through since the noughties, since the 2000s, but you don't really get me time. You just work really hard till you sort of get to a point. And now my children are all, are all off my hands. So now it's a lot, lot easier and I can focus a lot more on working in the business I'm in and, and helping a few other businesses. But in terms of work-life balance, it's difficult because there are times when you are commuting long distance and I've done global jobs as well and I think that it can become very tiring. I think the tiring creeps up on people and you don't really realise or you can be working out very long hours, it creeps up on you and you don't really realise. And I do think that as we move forward as a society, people will find better ways of saying, of noticing that people are literally drained and doing more about it than maybe there's been moments when people have got so overwrought and overcooked they become bad within the workplace and they also become bad within their family and bad within everything else and it's only when they actually recover from the extreme fatigue that they say oh my goodness I don't think I've got there in massive extreme but I think I've been pretty close where you've been burning the hours quite hard and you really do have to step back and say okay take a deep breath what makes sense sensible way to run your life and how do you scale better. You can't scale and have thousands of relationships with thousands of people. But what you can do with business is you can 
create a culture and processes below that culture that is scalable. So I can't have a relationship with 100 people in the business. I run businesses of 500 people or global businesses where you're talking to people all over the world. And it's much harder in those environments to create culture because the culture is very different in every single territory. But you can have some processes and some ways of doing it that mean you can scale through that rather than just the personal relationships and some key personal relationships. So when I was doing it globally, I used to try and have good relationships with the key leads in the various countries and then try and understand how they did things and then try and work it that way, if that kind of answers the question. But yeah, on the balance thing, if you're doing calls at all times of day and night and doing all the rest of it, there's no easy answer. It gets very challenging. Listen to podcasts. Maybe that's the answer. Yeah, but use your time wisely. I mean, listen to podcasts on your, on your route to work do things like that there's easier ways of doing it now exactly and taking a step back i wanted to ask you what do you see as the attributes of a great leader or a leader in the data space i think the thing is that there's some really important things that always need to happen with data and they're not going away they're getting more challenging and you've always got to have good quality data and talking about good quality data and talking about how you extract it you transform it you organize it you do all those things with data is to a lot of people a very dull subject and certainly to a lot of people in senior management that's kind of like really it's a little bit dull and boring but the problem is without really good quality data management and keeping the integrity and data management, you can never do the great data science or analytics. And therein goes another problem. So many data scientists want a job where they're actually doing proper data science and they actually end up doing data management, as I would call it. I think to be a good leader, or if you're trying to pick a boss, you want to really work for someone who understands when somebody says, I've done this in data science, that you understand how much of that job was 80% of the job actually the data management. And then the poor thing was crammed at the end with 20% of the time to do the data science. And then once they've got the data science, helping them to understand how that data science can be applied to the business to bring the business uplift. So it's a bit like as we were talking earlier. And I think so often where it, where it does go wrong is that people don't really understand what it takes to do those things. Even to this day, I constantly struggle with people thinking iPhone and Apple have made it really good for us. And I love it. I love I buy a new phone and I sync it and everything's there. And okay, there's a few apps that don't work and things. And I think, oh, isn't this rubbish? Barclays is terrible. Monzo's brilliant. You just think, oh, but isn't it brilliant? But to a certain degree, because if you're a non-data literate person, and you don't understand consumer experience, and you don't understand tech, but you understand business, they think that everything that some of us are talking about and doing is as simple as my iPhone. And we're all kind of thinking, oh, if only. So from a sort of a leadership perspective, it is still difficult to say to people without sounding really dull and boring, here's what we've got to go through in order to get this organized in a way that we can then do some really clever work on it. And then I really need to ask you these questions to understand how we're going to apply this really clever work and how we're going to embed this clever work within your marketing or your business ecosystem to actually drive the uplift that you want. And so finding simple, succinct and explainable ways of doing that is what makes 
it really successful. It's going to get more difficult because what's going to happen now with regulation is that there is emphasis on leaders of organizations to be able to explain. They call it the explainability of what your data is doing. So people ought to be able to explain how a model's being used. And once you throw machine learning into it and the machine learning is making the model better, you go right back to that Twitter example of where I had a machine learning model and it very quickly became racist and misogynistic within four hours. How is machine learning model not described Discriminating. If you go right back to my flight example, how is it suddenly not giving away lots of free upgrades to places that it maybe shouldn't be or lots of free downgrades to people that are going to then go absolutely nuts? How do you make it so that a CEO or someone can very simply explain what the principles of the model are and how do you make sure that, that that's fair and equitable? I think that's going to be a really big challenge for business moving forward. And I think it's a good challenge because it means we do all have to communicate better with each other. They are big challenges. It takes me a long time to sit down and to write out sometimes how to present it in a way to clients. It shows enough of the intellect and hard work that's gone into it for them to really value the output that's coming out the other end. And then the value that's coming out the other end, they really then focus on it and how you can then implement that to then drive the business value. Because I think sometimes it gets presented, but then it never gets any further. That's right. So many great points there in that answer. I know we're, we're cutting it very fine on time. This is excellent. Yeah, I only have last question for you. A takeaway that you would like to leave the listeners with, something that they should ponder, think about, something that they can help them in their careers. What would you like to leave them with? Yeah, my advice would be to think about the type of data you want to work with. There's going to be all sorts of new types of data, things like data for the Internet of Things. Think about the country you're in. Think about all those things, because, for instance, in Africa, mobile phone and Internet browsing data on mobile phones has just leapfrogged traditional sort of broadband integration. I haven't actually seen it for myself, but I believe in Spain they had very poor infrastructure for banking, etc. And so when they put in the cash machines, actually in the cash machines in Spain, you can buy a ticket to a football match. Now, something like that's really interesting because when you think about the cash machines in Britain that we have all over the place, they're going to become irrelevant very soon, just like the banks, tellers, the people standing at the counters became irrelevant. They're going to become irrelevant soon because when you're actually somewhere now, people are paying cashless. So those things are going on. So I think you have to kind of get the context is what I'm trying to say. You have to think about which country am I in and what's the degree of the maturity and where are the areas that are going to be evolving and changing quite quickly. If you're somebody who wants a really fast career path, the trick to a certain degree is to go into something that is moving really quickly and changing a lot. So for instance, there's going to be masses of ethics around the internet of things data. What does happen with the data around me switching off and on my lights? There's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that's coming up there. So I think you've got to kind of decide on which 
type of data? Is it medical research data? Is it Internet of Things data? If you're going into, is it data to do with the major issues in the world that's happening now, like massive change in weather and climate and how those then impact business? There's going to be masses of changes in areas like shipping and property data. Airlines and airport data has already moved far ahead. Most of us have played with that app where you can see where the um, aeroplane's landing from. So kind of decide on your sector and look at your sector in the context of your country where it is in terms of the digital transformation. And then I think the next layer down is you have to think about what is the bit you think you're good at and the bit you need to play in. And if that is more of the sort of the academic backroom or if it's more of the sort of the engineering of data and science, which is less about the modeling, but it's more about how the actual flows of the data and the cloud-based computing and everything can play a part in it, then that's another zone. And if you are good at the interpretation and you're good at the explanation and you're good at understanding how to apply it all to business problems, that's another level. And if you're somebody who wants to write code for machine learning, there's another area. So there's so many different techniques that Whatever you want to do, I'm desperately trying to think of a good example in data science. Whatever you want to do, though, you don't want to sort of take yourself down a complete dead end. So go into something that's so narrow. There's so much potential for data science in so many areas. You don't want to go into something that's so niche that you can never reapply that to another industry or to another sector or to another country. Yes. Because you'll just be in the same thing. And if that zone you're in becomes maxed out, then there will be less opportunity for the jobs and the growth and for all those things. So just try to think about it within context. That is so true. And that is excellent. Caroline, yeah, thank excellent. you so much. Nice to meet you. Thank you for doing the interview. Yes, great to meet you. And I'll let you know when it's coming out. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks Bye. so much. Have a great day. Bye. Datasource Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Datasource is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning, and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.